Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Ken Buckler. Based in the Washington, D.C. metro area, Ken is a risk management professional and cybersecurity specialist who has worked for public and private clients for over 10 years. You can follow him on Twitter at CAFSEC, that's C-A-F-F-S-E-C, and check out his website at KenBuckler.com. Ken is the author of a number of LeanPub books, including his latest in-progress book, Hacking of the Free, Understanding Digital Threats to Democracy in the 21st Century. The book will be about the concept of digital warfare, broadly construed not just to mean conventional hacking, but also attempts to influence people through propaganda, particularly propaganda that threatens democracy. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ken's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Ken, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, th- thanks for having me, Len. I-, I really appreciate it. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in software and programming and how you got into cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I've actually lived in the Washington County, Maryland, uh, which is really close to Hagerstown, Maryland, if anyone's ever heard of that. Uh greater, greater uh, area around the D.C. metro area. And, uh, you know, I'm just a good old country boy. And I live out here in the middle of nowhere. And I've always had a fascination with computers. Uh, My my first computer was actually a VIC-20, which had a basic basic software programming interface. I forget what what exactly it stood for now. Anyway, it had a whopping 5K of memory. And my my first experience with computers was actually writing programs for that VIC-20 because back then you couldn't go buy Windows. You couldn't go, you know, actually install software. You would actually get a book. All right. and, and some of them were pretty cool. They were actually like choose-your-own-adventure books and where you'd get to certain points in the book and it would say, okay, now type in this computer code to continue the book. And that was, that was when I really started getting interested in computers. But then I realized that, that some of the programs that I was typing in actually had some flaws in them that I could, I could cheat the programs pretty easily. Um, so, you know, funny story, when I was in elementary school uh, – I actually uh, impressed my teacher with a 200 word per minute typing skill. Um, and, wow. and actually, I, I well, because I actually don't type at 200 words per minute, but I, I found a flaw in the, the typing software when I was in <laughs> elementary school. And, and I, I, yes, I hacked the software and I tricked it into thinking I was typing at 200 words per minute. So the teacher didn't question it. I got an A. But that was really what really got me into. Uh, cybersecurity initially, really even before, before cybersecurity was was really mainstream. Um, so you know, all through school, you know, I always focused on computers. Uh, I went to Mount St. Mary's University uh, here in Maryland, and we actually, uh, when I was there, I took a major in uh, not cybersecurity because cybersecurity wasn't even available as a major yet. I took a major in computer science. And, you know, looking back, I am very glad that I took the major in computer science and the major in cybersecurity wasn't available yet because taking the major in computer science really taught me a lot more about programming than I would have uh, had had I just gone cybersecurity. And that programming understanding has helped me tremendously throughout my career. Uh, so, so after college, uh, I actually got hired on as a federal contractor, uh, and 
I've been doing uh, cybersecurity, uh, information assurance, software testing, and software programming services uh, ever since. And I, I've been doing that for actually about 12 years now. Uh, Thanks very much for sharing I absolutely all that. love it. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much for sharing all that. I've got a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you about that. Um, yeah. Uh, but the first, so the first one is, um, it's a really interesting thing when I talk to people about their, you know, on this podcast who are in tech and, and how they were first introduced to computers. Uh, did your parents buy your computer for you? Did you, or did you spontaneously, or did you ask them for it? Uh, you know, my my dad bought it. Um, I think he he bought it and just kind of set it there in front of me and. He was like, here, you know, you figure this out. Um, he never really played with it a whole lot. I think he, he might have initially bought it for himself, but then I would never let him on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, so, so my parents definitely encouraged me, um, but I've, I've actually done a lot of research on my own uh, as well outside of uh, higher learning and also outside the workplace. Uh, I actually run a uh, cybersecurity blog. It hasn't been as active as I'd like in the past few years, but I've I've actually run my own cybersecurity research, uh, especially around honeypots. Uh, that's actually been really interesting because I've actually managed to capture brand new malware samples that way and analyze them, dig deep into them, find out where they come from. So, so I, I've always been curious about the stuff, but yes, my parents definitely were an, uh, an influence on that. And um, I'm sure you, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes of, of the podcast, uh, yeah. and so you're probably expecting this question. But uh, one thing that often comes up is when people have studied computer science, I like to ask them, if you were starting again now, uh, would you do a full computer science, formal four-year computer science degree, uh, particularly with such high tuition, and, and, but also you know, with so many tools and, and learning mechanisms available online now? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and one of the main reasons for that, is so great example with me being a federal contractor a lot of the positions that uh, I would apply for or and even the position I'm in right now uh, you have to have that degree uh, you absolutely have to have at least a four-year degree some of the positions even uh, want a master's degree anymore um, and and that's really a, a requirement that the federal government is putting on these contracts to make sure that you're getting high quality contractors and you're not just getting the lowest cost bidder. Uh, I, I absolutely support that approach because yes, there is a lot of stuff you can learn online. However, there's also a lot of programming theory that you learn at a higher education environment that you absolutely don't get by trying to learn on your own. Uh, can you learn the programming theory on your own? Sure. But, at the same time, you ha it's it's just so much of a better experience. Yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. I've I've heard um, uh, that that type of response from from people um, in part particular sort of areas of, of uh, tech before um, that. And but particularly, uh, I've got a little joke about how like a lot of the stuff we have online is designed by people who couldn't go to jail for making a mistake. Um, and uh, you know, Gmail in particular is something I often sort of complain about because you know if it, it, it hides the email address from you from the person you're sending it to. And the, the reason I bring this up is that if you're working, if you're hiring for a government agency, and particularly or department where you know stuff might really matter if you get it wrong, uh, the sort of you, you just have standards in place. And sometimes those standards, yes, mean mean you know someone needs to have a full university degree showing that they spent four years 
being trained and sort of vetted in the, in the, in their own way by that process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just the the federal sector on that. It's also the private sector. Um, you know, I, I know now. I've never personally worked in the banking industry. However, I do have uh, friends who worked in the banking industry in the past, and they've told me it's actually even worse in the banking industry. Um, in that, you know, one mistake, and let's say you know, a deposit doesn't get put into an account, and that's like a couple million dollar deposit. It's supposed to be going into somebody's savings account. Well, even just one day, you're talking hundreds or even thousands of dollars in interest that that deposit is not collecting because it's in the wrong account. So there's zero room of margin of error uh, in in industry like the banking industry. And, you know, it, you have to have strict standards to make sure that the people understand what they're doing and they're not going to screw up. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, having worked a little bit in banking myself and... Uh the, the thing is that, you know, for anyone listening, we're not saying that you can't learn all this stuff and, and be an, a genius programmer uh, without going to, you know, unless you go to university. It's just that, like, if you're on the other, the conservative side of things and you're making hiring decisions, often there are just going to be constraints that your organization has in order to be to be very careful. Uh, and so actually before it was so I'm, I've got some questions I want to ask you about honeypots uh, and about um, uh, cybersecurity generally. But before we do that, um, one thing I like to do in these interviews is talk, get to know the person a little bit. And you mentioned in your LinkedIn bio that one of your biggest accomplishments is becoming an Eagle Scout. Yes. And yes. I was wondering if you could talk, just imagine, I mean, many of our listeners are not from uh, the United States or from Canada. They're from uh, overseas, uh, from our perspective, um, and uh, might have heard of the, the Boy Scouts or the Scouts from movies and TV, but might not really know a lot about the organization itself. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the Scouts are, how you got involved, and uh, why becoming an Eagle Scout is such an accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the Boy Scouts of America... Uh, is a national organization which is really focused on developing young men into leaders. Um, you know, and you know, and you'll hear a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, you know, they they go out camping a lot, and you know, they learn how to tie knots." And they, oh, I definitely learned how to tie knots. I can tell you how to tie thirty different knots. <laughs> um, but it's not really about the camping. It's not really about the knots. It's about ingraining into young men. Um, and, and I actually, I started with uh, Cub Scouts, which was in elementary school. Um, it's about ingraining into us. And, and I'm so glad that they allow uh, women into it now as well, because it's, it's a wonderful program, regardless of whether you're male or female. It's, a, it's all about ingraining into you a work ethic, a leadership ethic, and really a a caring and understanding for not just yourself, but for everybody else. Uh, and so, so the reason that Eagle Scout is, is so important to me is because I, that is the culmination of my entire time through the scouting program. And uh, I believe it's only about 3% of people who actually join the scouting program end up getting their Eagle Scout. Now, I was actually in a uh, Cub Scout group where I think it was, I want to say, six or seven of us out of nine of us from the original Cub Scout group 
not only went on to Boy Scouts, but then actually all of us got our eagle as well. So I had some tremendous leadership and mentorship uh, going through the scouting program, and I just can't say enough good things about it. And so one of the ways, so the way you, you sort of advance to the Eagle Scout status is by getting merit badges? Yes. In, in various That's... different things, like, so obviously not tying might be one of them, uh, but, but, there, but, there <laughs> are, but there's a lot of community service as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, and, ac- and actually, for in order to get your uh, Eagle uh, badge, you have to actually do a community service Eagle project. Uh, my project was I actually remodeled the entire kitchen for a local church. Oh. Uh, and that was completely uh, uh, going through painting the entire kitchen. Uh, I think we resurfaced the uh, cabinets doors and I also actually uh, built a mop closet uh, that was a stand up a standalone mop closet that we built off site brought in and then uh, put in there as long as well as a uh, trash and recycle bin and it just absolutely transformed that kitchen from the old outdated like 60s style kitchen to a more modern kitchen that was much more useful for the entire church when they had their uh, social gatherings, and it, it was absolutely phenomenal. So, yes, the the community service is a huge part of scouting, and and that's also part of the the mindset that you know they like to ingrain into you is help the community, and that mindset is still in me. And is there is there a religious aspect to the Boy Scouts? Uh, it there is in that you you. One of the, the, the pillars of scouting, basically, is uh, reverent. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily say you have to believe in a certain God or you have to believe in God, period, but you have to have a, a kind of a, a religious mindset to you in that you believe in something. You believe there's a higher power out there, um, but... It's not necessarily a Christian organization. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, geared towards any certain denomination. It's it's absolutely uh, just very generic in you know. And, and I never actually had any real religious push in my entire time during the organization. There wasn't a whole lot of that, other than you know, if you wanted to. Like when we were at scout camp, they had mass. We could go to the mass at scout camp. It was completely optional. And, you know, put it this way. If you were an atheist in scouting, you would not feel ostracized. You would not feel excluded. You would still feel like one of the boys. And is it uh, something that stays apart, typically stays a part of your life uh, after you become an adult? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I look to eventually probably end up getting involved with scouting again. Um, you know, now that may be volunteering to help out with scout camp sometime. That may be volunteering to become a leader. Um, I don't know. Uh, but they always tell you once you get your, uh, your Eagle badge that, you know, be prepared because it'll sneak up on you sometime. And when you're least expecting it, scouting's going to come back into your life. And I fully believe that. I, I fully think that that is going to end up happening to me. And I welcome it. I absolutely welcome it. 
Thanks very much for sharing all that. It's uh, it's something I've always been sort of interested in talking to someone about, and I think you're the first Eagle Scout that I well knowingly knowingly had a chance to talk to about it. So that that was really really great to hear. So going going back to your your career and, and cybersecurity, I wanted to take maybe the, I thought a good way in would be maybe to ask you a couple of questions about things that people would hear about uh, in the press with respect to cybersecurity, and just ask your opinion. So for example, is the hacking of autonomous vehicles something that you would be concerned about as an expert in the field? Of, uh, of absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, it, I, I won't even, I'll even take a step backwards on that and say I'm concerned about hacking of the non-autonomous vehicles right now. Uh, you know, great example. My vehicle I have right now, all right, I have a Jeep Wrangler. And it is one of the newer Wranglers. And I am somewhat terrified by how much of it is actually computerized. Um, there's actually been one or two times that I've had to turn the engine off completely and then restart the engine because the computer just glitched out and just lights up every single light on my dashboard. Oh, wow. And, and, and it just it won't go anywhere. But then if I turn the engine back off and turn it back on, it runs like a dream. So... And, and if you look at some of the options, I've actually got a, uh, a dongle that I can plug into my uh, vehicle, monitor every aspect of the engine. And it's terrifying to know that some of that stuff can actually be controlled by the computer. Uh, your accelerator, uh, I think about the only thing that isn't actually computer controlled would be the, the manual steering. Um, as well as your brakes. But even then, you know, you could get warnings that, you know, oh, hey, you know, you your brakes are failing or something like that, send you into a panic and make you crash, even if there's, you know, no actual problem. Um, so, so do autonomous vehicles worry me? Yes, absolutely they worry me. Because now we're talking about uh, vehicles that everything is being controlled by the computer. And the fact that we've already got vehicles that are vulnerable now as it is, and now we're going to let the computer completely control the vehicle, yes, that does absolutely worry me. Um, you know, and one of the things that I've actually uh, looked on that is, it's like, for example, Tesla's vehicles. Uh, Tesla's vehicles, even though they aren't fully autonomous, they still have the stuff built in that theoretically, if somebody goes in and they compromise the computer system, yes, they could take over your car. A lot of the vehicles now receive over-the-air updates uh, through a cellular modem or something equivalent. You know, if you got like the OnStar, uh, it'll actually allow updates through some of those cellular modems to your vehicle. And what's to prevent somebody from hacking that signal, sending your vehicle malware and taking your vehicle over? Uh, from what I've been told, the auto industry is improving, uh, but I think they've still got a long way to go. Another thing that people often hear about in the media with respect to cybersecurity is um, the problems that might arise from not being able to access things. So, for example, you know, often it, it's just about there will be news about how, you know, someone in the U.S. government wants to, Apple to open up a phone for them. What, what do you think about that and about, about the sort of other side of things. So let's say like if something is totally secure from being looked into, then that means that law enforcement can't look into it. Um, 
you know, and there, there's a lot of controversy over this. Um, India is probably a good example on on how it could be done. However, not how I would prefer it be done. India, uh, they actually require that uh, manufacturers provide the keys to the kingdom, provide that universal key so that the government can decrypt those devices at any time that they need to. Uh, personally, uh, I am a huge privacy advocate. Uh, you know, I firmly believe that someone's right to privacy needs to outweigh the ability for, for the government or a third party to intercept and decrypt their communications. Uh, you know, one of the things on that that you have to keep in mind is... If the government has the back door, um, and, and actually, you know, we actually had just something in the news on this. If the government has the back door and they don't try to fix that back door, they don't demand that back door get closed, somebody else might find that back door and exploit it. Um, and perfect example is uh, the most recent Microsoft updates that actually just got released uh, this month were actually released uh including a patch for a problem that the NSA found. The NSA discovered that it was possible to modify uh, software certificates so that the uh, computer would actually trust your software installation as being from whatever party they're claiming. For example, we'll say from Microsoft, and actually installing that software without giving you any warning that, hey, this software doesn't come from a trusted source. Um, the, the real problem with that is then somebody could actually write a, a theoretical Microsoft patch for the operating system, not actually issue it from Microsoft, but then your, your computer downloads that patch, installs it, now your computer has malware embedded into the operating system. Yikes. So thank goodness that the NSA actually disclosed that vulnerability to Microsoft when they found it. Um, otherwise there would have been a serious risk that a private third party or a foreign country could then exploit that vulnerability as well. And uh, do you have an Alexa? I do. Uh, uh, she's listening right now. <laughs> I don't worry about it. Um, if I absolutely need privacy, I will have to shut off my Alexa. But also, more importantly, I have to shut off my cell phone. I'd have to shut off my computer. I have to shut off almost every single electronic device uh, in proximity to me. To be honest, I'm not that interesting. I'm not <laughs> that worried about someone listening to my conversations um, because I just, you know, like I said, I if they want to listen to me while I'm watching TV or, you know, streaming Netflix or whatever – more power to them, man. Um, but at the same time, if I want to send an encrypted email to a friend and that encrypted email has information in it, like, you know, sensitive financial information, I want the assurance that somebody can't break that encryption. That's why I'm such a strong privacy advocate, because the privacy part being able to secure our information when we know we want it secured is is absolutely critical to me. And um, moving on more into a little bit of the sort of 
details of cybersecurity. So you mentioned honeypots earlier. What? In, in, I mean, I'm sure many many people listening have heard about honeypots from spy movies, where you get an attractive person to seduce someone. But what what's a honeypot in the context of cybersecurity? Uh, well, you know, it's actually not much of a uh, a different uh, concept. So basically, what you do is you set up a computer system or you know something similar online that appears to be a vulnerable system that appears to have security flaws. Um, now, in my case, what I would actually do is I'd set up a virtualized uh, computer that would pretend to be a some sort of a web server or something like that, and I would intentionally give it flaws that could be exploited. I'd intentionally give it a uh, bad, or not bad, but uh, a weak password, and I just open up my my firewall and I'd set it out on the public internet and I'd just wait and I'd wait and I'd watch it and it would actually be completely isolated from the rest of my network and so there wasn't a possibility that somebody could use it to to attack the rest of my network but it was very interesting to watch because here I am you know I'm on a a real slow uh DSL connection private home line and I just open up my firewall ports, and sure enough, within a couple hours, somebody's starting to probe my honeypot already, even though I haven't advertised it anywhere. All right, so there are people out there scanning the the dark sections of the internet, the the section of the internet that have private IP spaces, and they're just constantly scanning them, looking for holes, looking for places to to start exploring. And so, so the honeypot, you know, really shows how prevalent that is. That you know, the, there's millions upon millions of internet addresses out there, and within just a couple hours of mine going live, somebody starts examining it. So that shows just how dangerous the internet actually can be. Um, you know, and like I said before, I've actually when they would attack my honeypot, typically they'd leave malware on it for me. Um, some of the malware was was completely unknown malware that, you know, if I go to a website like VirusTotal.com and I upload the malware, VirusTotal will be like, we've never seen this before. So so that that's the, the really neat ones that when, when you start diving into them, because when you look at those brand new pieces of malware, this is something that not even the antivirus companies know about. So then I go and I submit it to a couple of the antivirus companies and eventually it gets a detection signature. But, you know, a lot of it is all custom-written stuff where somebody thinks they found some company's uh, private web server that has, you know, a database of their customer list or something like that, but then they leave behind this, this uh, malware in order to try to find more. That's really interesting. So I, I, had, I had totally misunderstood the concept. I would thought of it from the perspective of the sort of bad actor setting up a honeypot rather than the, the cybersecurity person setting up a honeypot. And so is this, for example, something that, say, a, a large corporation would do, would sort of set out these honeypots in order to see who is attacking them or how they might be attacked by people who are out there scanning for weaknesses? Yes, Absolutely. Um, you know, there's actually commercial honeypot software that you can actually go out and purchase, uh, you know, with that intention. Um, a lot of it's open source, though. Um, and, you know, and some of it is, you know, just completely virtualized or somebody builds a system with that intention. But one of the things that uh, that some companies will actually do is they'll actually build a mirror environment 
that is it completely mirrors their production environment and they'll put that mirror environment out in front of their production environment so that if somebody penetrates their firewall and manages to get in they're attacking the 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 fake network instead so that gives the the network administrator an idea of what kind of data they're after and what kind of techniques they're using so that the network administrator can then properly secure the production network so let's say that's that's really interesting so how the uh, with respect to securing there's like you know putting out sort of hooks and seeing who bites and how they bite and then trying to protect against that kind of attack if you're let's say doing cybersecurity for a, a large corporation and you discover you're being attacked can besides reporting the attack to the authorities are you allowed to go after the attacker yourself to try and shut them i mean not not just shut that not just stop their attack but actually like shut them down um so from a legal standpoint we are not allowed to hack back we are not allowed to go back and start attacking the hacker now we can block their attacks on us that that's absolutely doable um, that's absolutely very encouraged. In fact, there's actually entire websites devoted to blocking bad actors. Uh, Spamhaus is actually one of the, the more popular sites for that, where they'll actually publish block lists of, here's the guys that we've seen you know, in, from these different internet addresses going out and attacking computer systems. So block these computers so they can't get to you. Um, that's all defensive measures. Uh, we can't do offensive measures. Uh, and, and in fact, even the U.S. government can't do offensive measures with, without certain approvals. Um, I've never been uh, in on any of that. Uh, but does it happen? Probably. Uh, you know, and I, we've seen examples that were possibly government uh, sanction attack. Greatest example on that is going to be the Stuxnet virus, mm -hmm. uh, which was the virus that attacked Iran's nuclear centrifuges and actually physically destroyed about a thousand of their centrifuges by rapidly spinning them up and spinning them back down, but tinkering with the monitoring software, so the monitoring software thought everything was fine. Yeah, that that reminds me actually. So um, you know, Iran is in the news. Uh, yep. These days, um, one thing that, you know, for people who are interested in this kind of thing uh, that, you know, came to top of mind when conflict seemed to be escalating between the U.S. and Iran was what if Iran retaliates with a kind of cyber strike? Um, this, right. is, this is something that prominent, you know, journalists in the United States have, have I think, I forget who, it, Dan Rather maybe wrote a book about it. Okay. Um, is that something that keeps, I mean, not, not specifically Iran, but is that something that keeps you up at night, um, a sort of Stuxnet being done to the United States through power stations or something like that? Absolutely. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm actually touching on that topic uh, in my newest book, uh, in the, the Hacking of the Free book, um, because that is actually a technique that could be used not just to inflict physical damage against the United States, but also more likely its purpose would be to inflict psychological damage on the citizens of the United States. Hmm. All right. All right. Th think about for a second, you know, you hear about, you know, some small town in the middle of nowhere and they get hit by a cyber attack and it completely shuts down their water system or their natural gas system 
or, or God forbid, their power system. And it shut down for, for days or weeks because it, did, because it had an open vulnerability and some foreign government attacked it. Now, think about the consumer confidence hit that causes. Because if they, they hear about this little tiny town, they're going to think, well, that could happen here, too. And it, it really messes with you psychologically. And, and a, lot of, a lot of cybersecurity is actually defending against social engineering. Um, and, and really, the, just the thought that your computer systems could be attacked like that and cause physical damage to critical infrastructure is absolutely some of the best social engineering you can do. So do I worry about that actually being able to happen? Yes, absolutely. Um, great example, the, the SCADA systems, the, the systems that are similar, like the, the same systems that were attacked in Iran, those same similar systems are present throughout the United States. They control power, they control water, they control natural gas, and those systems are very finicky. All right, those systems are very delicate in that a lot of times system administrators don't like to install security updates on those systems because they've custom tailored them so much that there's a chance the security update might undo those customizations and might actually break their software. So they have to walk a very fine line between keeping things secure and actually uh, ensuring that uh you know, they don't break their critical applications. So it, it's it's very interesting, and I don't think anyone's actually come up with a real good rock-solid solution yet other than possibly putting a, a third-party device on the same network as the uh, SCADA systems to monitor for tampering. But even that wouldn't be foolproof. Yeah, it's really it's, – thanks for going into that, that detail. Um, for anyone who hasn't read about the Stuxnet virus, I would recommend reading about it. It's a fascinating story and also very scary, particularly because, uh, you know, the other side of Mark Andreessen saying that software is eating the world is that everything's a computer now. And uh, they're embedded in, in systems that, you know, we typically associate with being sort of hardware rather than software uh, in ways that make things um, very vulnerable. Uh, and um, – on that note, uh, you've got a book on LeanPub that's about identity theft, um, and I was wondering if yes. you could talk a little bit about that. What are what are some of the let's let's just let's just be kind of cheesy. Like, if there was one thing you could tell our listeners to do to protect their identities online, what would you or just generally uh, from identity theft? What would you suggest that they do? So, so the the number one recommendation I always provide to everybody to help reduce their identity theft impact. Okay, not not the chances of them becoming a victim, but reduce the impact of becoming a victim is to have your bank account and then have a credit card that is not actually tied to that bank account. Use that credit card to make all of your online purchases, all your store purchases, all your gas station purchases, and then use your bank account to pay off that credit card every month. Uh, the reason I say that uh, is that if you use the, the credit card and your credit card gets compromised, the worst thing that can happen is while well, you dispute the charges and your credit card company holds those charges 
as invalid while they conduct the investigation, which can take up to 30 days. If you use your bank card, if you use your actual bank account for those same transactions and your bank card gets compromised, now you don't have any money in your checking account. It's a lot harder to fix not having any money compared to fixing invalid charges on your credit card. That is the number one uh, piece of advice I always give everybody when it comes to identity theft. And I, let me tell you, following my own advice has saved me several times in that I get a call up, hey, your credit card's been compromised. Okay, thank goodness it's just a credit card and somebody didn't empty my bank account. So thanks for that advice. I've actually never heard that before. That's that's really great. Um, uh, on that note, I, I've had actually, I'm pretty careful, and I actually had a credit card compromised once. It seems like my bank was able to contact me about all kinds of, you know, sales and offers over the years. But then when my credit card got compromised, they just blocked the account from working. And that's how I found out when I was trying to buy a plane ticket. Uh, how do credit card numbers typically get compromised? Uh, so there's... There's two main methods that uh, happen right now. Uh, the the first main method is through malware. Um, and a lot of that is actually going to be either malware that infects your local computer, where you get a virus on your computer and you don't realize it, or uh, the malware might infect a company's remote server somewhere. Um, Target was actually a perfect example of that, where uh, they got their cash registers compromised by malware. The malware stole those credit card numbers, transmitted it back. That's the first way. Okay. The second way, the second way is actually very low tech method, um, and that's through credit card scrape or credit card scrapers. I guess is basically what you call it, um, where they go to the gas pumps and they put this little device over top of the card reader at the gas pump. When you slide your card into the gas pump, it reads it. And at the same time, the device they put on the gas pump reads your card, captures the uh, credit card information that's stored on the magnetic strip. And then later, somebody comes back and they pick up the device. So that's the second way. That one's actually extremely popular across the entire country and probably in other parts of the world as well. That's why there's a big push towards using the chip cards instead of the magnetic stripe cards. But the problem there is, even when you put the, the card in the reader, even if you're using the, the chip at the gas pump, it still has the magnetic stripe. The magnetic stripe reader is still going to read that card number off the card. So it's not going to ultimately matter. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing both of, both of those, those answers. Um, uh, it's curious. So when, when, for example, one way that your credit card number can be stolen if you've been compromised locally, as I understand it, is keystroke readers. So it, uh, something might just look for yeah. you typing 16 numbers in a row? Yeah. Um, so that's one of the, the possibilities. Actually, a, a more uh, common one now is called banking trojans, where they'll actually look for... Uh, monitor for you logging into your bank account website or you logging into your uh, credit card website and actually steal not just your card number, but your login credentials. So they can actually go in, they can change your credentials or whatever they want to do. Um, 
uh, one of the the defenses against that that I always you know have my wife do or or I do is I typically if I'm paying something directly with my bank account and not my credit card I'll actually call off and I'll make the payment over the phone because it's a lot harder for them to intercept that phone call compared to intercepting what I'm doing on my computer. It's interesting, just as a sort of uh, user of things and not an expert in, in this, um, I've noticed that the banking services that I use online have become much more conservative over just the last couple of years. Uh, for example, a uh, bank I guess I shouldn't probably name that I use uh, based in the UK, uh, I can't actually log in online anymore without using an app on my phone that I've logged into and then yeah. ask for a digital activation key that then has a 60 second countdown timer. Like I'm, you know, now a spy or something like that. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just sort of invoking sort of countdown timers and spy movies and stuff like that. I'm trying to like, it feels like I'm trying to break into my own account. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what's funny is, so uh, some of the, the larger gaming companies have been using that technology for, for over a decade now. Um, Blizzard, uh, World of Warcraft, you know, they, they've actually got an authenticator similar to the, the, what you just described that secures your account from being stolen just through that method. Um, you know, how, how hilarious is it that the gaming industry has actually been out doing the banking industry in their security measures? And why, why would that be actually? Uh, well, the, Gaming industry is extremely valuable. Um, you know, think about this for a second. All right, so yes, I play World of Warcraft. All right, I have been playing ever since the game was released. I have, what, like 15 years worth of stuff on my account. Somebody comes in and they they get to my account. They steal my account. Now they can sell that account for a couple hundred dollars on eBay or the dark web or wherever, and they can actually, you know, like I said, they've stolen my account. They can sell all the stuff. They can sell all the gold, whatever they want to do. And I'm helpless to fix it unless I know, you know, certain information that I can call up Blizzard and say, hey, you know, my account got stolen, blah, blah, blah. And even then, it's not guaranteed that they'll restore everything. So that's why they've taken those additional steps, because it became a huge problem for them where people would come in and they'd steal uh, Warcraft accounts and sell them on eBay. It's this reminds me of something that um, I imagine is kind of like one of these high level insoluble issues. But you mentioned um, chips in cards uh, and bank cards, and I think a lot of people listening from from uh, outside the United States might be surprised to hear that chips aren't universal. And one of the reasons for that is that there's a lot of fragmentation in U.S. banking uh, compared yes. to other places. So there's like you know like a local person might own the bank in the town. Uh, you know, um, oh, yeah. and, and, and so, um, uh, having everybody s switching to chips, isn't as simple as sort of telling six banks like we might have in Canada, you know, uh, you know, you guys need to change here's some regulation. Uh, and so I guess that just like when, when I said sort of high level sort of issues is fragment, does fragmentation make things safer or does sort of unification make things safer? Because I, you know, just from an outsider's perspective, if everybody's, following all the same rules, then can't every, if someone finds an exploit, that exploit applies to everyone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that's actually one of the dilemmas that a lot of organizations face is, okay, hey, we've got this standardized baseline for our computer systems. Now, if every computer system follows that baseline and somebody finds a flaw in that baseline, 
now you have access to every single computer system. Um, so can diversification be uh, a good idea? Absolutely. Um, you know, I actually think that having non-standard computer systems would greatly help a lot of organizations prevent it from being attacked because now you don't have an attacker knowing what every single system is going to look like when they try to remote into it. On that note, actually, I guess it's a good opportunity to move on to the subject of your, your latest in-progress book, Hacking of the Free, Understanding Digital Threats to Democracy in the 21st Century. So I asked you straightforwardly, do you have an Alexa? Um, uh, I guess another question I might ask just as directly is, do you think voting machines should be computerized? Uh, you know, personally, I, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, I absolutely, so, so I will say, first off, I absolutely never, ever think a voting machine should ever touch the Internet. Um, that absolutely terrifies me, um, because it, it introduces a lot more risk by having the voting machine connecting to the internet. Um, but do I think that, you know, should we even use electronic voting machines at all? Um, kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I like the idea of having the voting machines be able to rapidly process the votes so that we have a, a quicker, view of how an election has gone. But at the same time, we need that those machines not to be a black box. Um, we shouldn't be relying on proprietary software that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Because when we do that, then what's to prevent the company that created that software from manipulating the votes directly and nobody would ever know. Um, you know so great example of of how we do some of the elections here in the United States. Uh, so here in Maryland, what we actually do, we have paper ballots, all right, that we will go to the polls, we'll fill out this paper ballot that has boxes you fill in with a pencil, and then you take that paper ballot over to a scanning machine. All right, the scanning machine scans through the paper ballot and records all the vote numbers. But you've still got the paper ballot there so that they can compare and audit that scanning machine to make sure the scanning machine hasn't been tampered with. Uh, Maryland actually did the, the first run of that here in, I think it was, uh, it was either 2014 or 2016. And they had, had it was less than a 1% margin of error. So they felt pretty confident in the, the technology. However, they're still going to do the audits because that way they know that the uh, voting machine isn't being tampered with. And so when it comes to um, the concept of hacking elections, um, there's obviously the sort of literal sense in which, you, which you've just been sort of describing the, the possibility of if, if, if something's touching the Internet. But there's also hacking in the sort of more of a metaphorical sense that might even be the one that's most popular nowadays. Uh, and that is invoked in your book when you talk about the concept of digital warfare. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and, and sort of, which is much more expansive than sort of, as it were, just this nonetheless still huge area of computer hacking. Yeah, sure. So, so as, as I mentioned previously, um, there's a, a large degree of cybersecurity which involves social engineering. And, and really what that is, is that's people hacking. All right, you're figuring out how somebody's brain works, and you're figuring out how to tinker with that brain by sending them certain text or images 
to get them to think the way you want them to think. Um, and that and that's why the the Cambridge Analytica uh, scam was such a big deal. Where you know I, I believe it was Trump's uh, organization actually got a hold of a large amount of data from Cambridge Analytica that actually let them build psychological profiles on Facebook users. Now, I, I'm not going to say that you know whether you know is it good or bad that could they do that. But I'm going to say they're not the only ones that have ever done that. They're just the only ones that got caught. Um, there absolutely are lots of organizations out there who are dedicated to building psychological profiles of people out there to figure out, well, what's the best way to market a product to somebody? Well, they take those same techniques and, well, what's the best way to get this person to vote for somebody else? What what do we need to you know make them think is going to happen? Do we need to blame you know problems on illegal immigrants? Do we need to tell people that you know a certain political party is going to take their guns away? That's how you get into someone's psyche. You, you figure out what those trigger points are, and you use those trigger points to convince them. Unless you vote for this candidate right here, then something bad is going to happen. And it, it, it works remarkably well. The, so, oh, sorry, go uh, ahead. No, no. So, so, so what we uh, end up happening is then we've got private organizations that will come through and they will actually take this information and, and it could be, you know, it could be a lobbyist or whatever, a lobbyist organization that, that wants to make sure people vote a certain way. It could be a political party wants to make sure people vote a certain way. But they'll take that information and they'll just start creating fake accounts on different social media sites. And they'll use those fake accounts to push this information, push this propaganda towards people to get them to vote certain ways. Now, that, this is actually completely outside the realm of fake news, actually. Fake news is actually a completely separate problem from this. And it, it's a very hard problem to solve because, unfortunately, we as a species tend to be very trusting in that we believe a lot of things that we see at face value. Uh, greatest example on that, uh, and, we, and we get the stuff stuck in our head and we don't even know where it came from. Great example on that is uh, Sarah Palin uh, during uh, the, the presidential election where she was running as vice president. Saturday Night Live did a skit where someone was pretending to be Sarah Palin, and they said that, oh, I can see Russia from my house while pretending to be Sarah Palin. That image has stuck in a lot of people's minds in that if you interview people, if you do a poll and you ask them who said that they can see Russia from their house in Alaska, that there's a large percentage of people who are going to say it was Sarah Palin that said that, not Saturday Night Live. So taking that same concept and putting it digitally, where you've got rapid content coming over and over from all these fake accounts, it just amplifies it so much more. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, thanks for going into into depth there, and for that that particular example at the end. Um, uh, it's an example of how, like, I'm sure many people listening to this are right now 
had the same experience I just did, which is like, hey, wait a minute, wasn't wasn't Tina Fey making fun of Sarah Palin actually saying that? Uh, and I don't know. Uh, I trust you. <laughs> but um, but, you know, the, there's this inherent uncertainty when it comes to information like that, that we, we, we ought to keep in mind all the time, but we kind of can't uh, because at a certain point you just kind of have to move on. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, it's not very troubling to most of us to think about a, a machine being hacked. I mean, we're worried about the consequences of it, but there's nothing inherently troubling about the idea that a machine can be manipulated. That's what machines are for. We build them. But the idea that a person can be hacked and manipulated that way, and as you say, this isn't, this isn't sort of new to, um, you know, the 21st century. But what, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, I think most of us have a sense of ourselves. We might think of, even if we adopt the idea that other people might not possess the kind of free will we wish they did, uh, we mostly think of ourselves as invulnerable, which is probably a big part of the problem. What can you do to monitor yourself for being hacked? Um, you know, the big thing is check your sources. Um, you know, is, is this truly something that is real? Is it truly something that is credible? Um, is this from a trusted source? And, you know, that's, that is all too often a problem on social media, period. Um, you know, now whether we're talking propaganda or fake news is people believe stuff at face value, way too much. Um, so, all right. So, so going a little bit into outside of the cybersecurity realm, outside of the political realm, I also I run a local satire site. It's it's a little satire blog, similar to Babylon B or The Onion. All right, and I I will make up all sorts of wild, crazy claims. Okay, so now keep in mind, I'm in Maryland, and here in Maryland. It gets really, really cold in the winter. All right, right now I think it's like twenty some degrees, maybe even lower. Uh, I managed to convince people, all right, completely by accident because I completely told my friend it's a, a satire article. I managed to convince people that the local government in one of the towns around here purchased an alligator from Florida and trained it to only eat geese to control the geese population. The local government has actually gotten phone calls. Oh my god! Complaining about them purchasing this alligator and putting it in the city park. So, 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 how do we protect ourselves from that? Ultimately, we have to we have to take a step back anytime we see something online, and, and you know, analyze it. Okay, for one thing, is this even within the realm of possibility? But also. Is this being reported on anywhere else? Um, and it's it, it's absolutely terrifying that so few people do that. One thing, uh, so there's the, there's there's protecting yourself, and thank you very much for sharing that story about the alligator. Uh, that's that's a really good lesson in how people will just believe what they see. I've had the experience that I think a lot of people have had of seeing uh, friends and family get caught up in propaganda, um, and one of the signs that I see is the people sort of repeating pat phrases and cliches. Um, right. You know, like the, the parroting, like exactly what they've seen and, and spreading it that way. And there seems to be something that a certain type of person actually finds enjoyable about kind of going along with the current. 
if you right. know what I mean, like being part of the group. I, I'm the kind of person, for example, I hate crowds. Uh, if there's a wave at the sports game, like I won't, I won't stand up for it because I just find it sort of creepy. Um, uh, but a lot of people love, love that. They love being in unison and being offered a way of signaling that you're part of a group seems to be very attractive. What, what do you think if, if, if you're concerned about someone, you know, having been caught up, having been hacked, uh, what can you, what, what can you do? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the best thing is to, to try to, you know, get them to research it. Um, so, so there's, you know, okay, so this is a book podcast, so I'm going to send out an absolutely great book for everybody to read, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, absolutely amazing book. Um, the book itself, one of the, the great lessons that I've learned in that book is never, ever tell someone straight up that they're wrong. Okay, because you're now contradicting the information that's inside their, their brain, and they're going to immediately reject that information that you just provided them. A better way to approach it is to get them to better research the topic on their own. Um, you know, so, so you know, one of the, the questions that I'll, I'll use would be, you know, oh, you know, that's really interesting. Um, you know, where did you uh, see that at? Because I haven't seen that anywhere else. Um, you know, and, and if they come back and say, oh, well, so-and-so said it, well, where'd they hear it from? And, and get them, get them thinking, you know, get them, you know, trying to research it on their own. Um, you know, now with that said, social media is typically often an echo chamber in that we have preconceived notions of how the world is. And because we have that preconceived notion, anytime that we see information, that matches that preconceived notion, we, we automatically want to assume that information is true and share that information. Um, so the, the only way to get over that, the only way to get people to, to get out of that mindset is to get them to challenge their own beliefs. You can't challenge that belief. You have to get them to challenge their own beliefs. Let me tell you, it's hard. It's extremely hard. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I actually, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. One thing I found is that, yeah, that definitely. Um, I mean, just telling someone you're wrong, or even worse, you're stupid, or often even worse, you're stupid, doesn't work. But asking people to reflect. One thing I've, one thing I've tried is asking people to reflect on what they've just done. Like, why did you just say that? I've heard that phrase before in exactly those words. Like, are you repeating it on purpose? Um, and, and somehow that just setting, setting off the self-reflection, uh, seems to at least put people down a path where they're not kind of captured anymore. They're out of the stream. They're out of the current, at least for a moment. Right. Exactly. Um, speaking of social media, um, so one thing I wanted to ask you, I saw recently, it might've been even just yesterday that, uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, uh, was having a big sort of employee meeting and he called up Elon Musk uh, and asked, if you were CEO of Twitter, what would you change? Um, and I think Elon Musk said something like, um, I would like to be able to know if something's a bot or a person. Uh, if you were CEO of Twitter, Ken, what would you do? Gosh. Um, oh, that's, that is a really good question. Um, you know, so, so as a cybersecurity professional, 
I get a lot of my news from Twitter. I get a lot of my data from Twitter. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm a little terrified by how much data I can actually scrape off of Twitter using its API. Um, so, you know, once again, this comes as a cybersecurity professional. I would ask Twitter to maybe restrict their APIs a little bit more, maybe restrict a little bit more how much data I can actually pull from their service. Um, because it, it's it's terrifying that I can, you know, there's services out there. I can go in there and I can I can find every single tweet, you know, that, that a certain account, you know, created, and I can get it almost in an instant. And then I can, you know, go back. Let's say I can go back 15 years. I don't know how long Twitter has been around. Um, but let's say I can go back, you know, that far. And I find some sort of a tweet from that long ago that I can take completely out of context and now put that person in a negative light. Um, and, and don't be surprised if, if that, you know, if that becomes a more popular method of attacking people, you know, especially political figures. Um, and you know, why, something why does, at the end of the day, why does Twitter allow that? Why does Twitter allow that? Yeah, because they they want to be open with their their data platform to encourage more use. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, something to keep in mind is we're all only human. We all make mistakes. You know, we we all say stupid things sometimes, especially when you're younger. I've got to say, I'm so glad none of this shit was around when I was a teenager. Amen. Because uh, I was, I, I was, I mean, not that I'm not a dumbass now, but boy, was I a dumbass back then. And uh, there, you would definitely be able to find, have found me saying dumb shit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we're all guilty of that. You know, the, the only difference between now and then is that now everything gets recorded. And, you know, as one of my friends, you know, likes to always say is the Internet is forever. The Internet never forgets. Um, that, actually, that leads me to the last question I want to ask you about about this subject before we just move on to the last part of the podcast where we talk about uh, your your work as a writer. You talk about a new kind of crystal ball in your book. What do you mean by that? And it and it is related to the sort of the amount of data that's out there on people. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So 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 it's absolutely terrifying uh, what kind of profiles you can build on someone just based upon the data that's available for them. Um, so, so in this case, the, the new kind of crystal ball that I was uh, speaking of is how you can actually infer aspects of someone's life based upon basically the metadata of their life. Um, you know, and this actually goes back to, you know, when you look at the, the whole uh, stuff where uh, the government was found, you know, looking at the metadata of phone calls or, or internet sessions or whatever uh, of U.S. citizens, people don't realize just how powerful that metadata really is. So Target uh, actually found that they could, based upon shopping habits of people going in and using their, their loyalty card or whatever, Target found that they could actually successfully predict when someone was pregnant just based upon the stuff that they purchased, even if it's not stuff related to being pregnant directly. So, for example, they found that uh, 
when someone starts purchasing a lot of unscented lotions and then maybe some extra multivitamins at the same time, if they start doing those purchases regularly, Target was actually able to predict that not only are they pregnant, but they could figure out what stage of the pregnancy they're in and actually figure out within, I think it was about within a week, if I remember correctly, the actual due date of the pregnancy. Um, so, so if you look at that, and then you think about all the information we post on social media, all of the information that your grocery store has about you, the information your gas station has about you, the information that your phone captures, you realize that everything you do is absolutely being tracked and can absolutely be used to build a profile of you. Uh, you know, every January, Google sends me an email, and that email gives me a map of everywhere that I have been because my Android phone tracks that. And Google happily shares a map with me. It says, okay, in fact, not only here is the uh, locations you've been, but here's the roads that you drove. That yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting topic, and that target story in particular. I believe that one of the sort of interesting details of it is that um, uh, the there was a a father of a woman who got mad yeah. at Target for targeting his daughter with stuff for pregnant women because the father right. himself didn't know that his daughter was pregnant, and so this is a it's it sort of ties into identity theft stuff. Kind of can happen in various ways or privacy can be violated in various ways. Uh, but uh, did you ever see the reboot of Battlestar Galactica? Yes. Yes. I absolutely loved it. So a uh, uh, huge, huge spoiler alert. Turn this off if you haven't seen Battlestar Galactica and you think you're going to watch it. But there's a really wonder. I, I ended up hating the show because of Gaius Baltar. Uh, but uh, anyway, there w I did watch it for a while. And there was one wonderful episode where a bunch of the heroes discover that they're actually Cylons. Um, and the reason I bring up that image is because the target being able to figure out that you're pregnant when you know you are is one thing, but what if it could figure out from your behavior that you're pregnant when even you didn't know yet? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is no. the kind of next level of this stuff that, then that's, this is why like the, this is, these are very deep questions about human nature and human identity. So is, is someone being predictable? Like, does that should we question our free will basically because of these kinds of questions are these things we're going to have to confront as, as sort of more and more data is picked up about us and analyzed over time by more and more sophisticated machines. I mean, are we, are we going to come to a point where we realize we actually are, you know, metaphorically uh, Cylons? You know, it, it really speaks to how, you know, how much we get influenced by outside forces as far as our behavior, because a lot of our behavior is conditioned based upon certain circumstances in our lives. Um, you know, and all that data is get being collected. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's absolutely terrifying to think that, you know, could a computer predict when someone's pregnant before they know? Absolutely. It could. Um, you know, and actually it's funny you mentioned Gaius Baltar. <laughs> Gaius Baltar was actually one of my favorite parts of that uh, series because Gaius Baltor was actually the the best example of someone who understood social engineering. Gaius Baltar, he understood how the human mind worked and he understood how to manipulate others 
to act the way that he wanted them to. Um, you know, and it speaks volumes that if you understand how the human mind works, if you understand how to hack that human mind, you can use that that knowledge to to get whatever you want, including become president of the the thirteen colonies. Well, I now have a newfound respect for Gaius Baltar, uh, the character from Battlestar Galactica. I always thought that he sort of like. I'm actually going to think about that. That's really interesting because I always viewed him as like the sort of writers had a commitment to keep that actor on the show. And so we're always sort of inventing new things to keep him around. Um, uh, but it's interesting to think of that, the idea, the very much interesting to think about it from the perspective you just described, that one of the things he represented was the way that, that people could be manipulated. I never thought of it that way before. Uh, so thanks very much for that. I really appreciate that. Um, moving on uh, to the last part of the interview. Uh, so you decided to write some books, uh, and you decided to write them on LeanPub. Uh, why did you choose us as your platform? Uh, well, so so first I'll, I'll get into why I actually decided to start writing books. Um, so as a cybersecurity professional, uh, I actually have to have certain continuing education uh, requirements to maintain my cybersecurity certifications. Um, and I'm, I'm looking through all the different requirements that are available to me. And one of the requirements is, uh, or one of the options that I have available that gets me a ridiculously large number of continuing education credits, uh, is to write your own book. I was like, you know, okay, so I can go, I can spend thousands of dollars and go to a couple different training classes and I'll learn what's in the training classes and, and possibly never even apply it to my daily life. Or I can go, I can write a book. I can still get credit for writing the book. I can possibly make a little bit of money. I'm not too worried about the money, to be honest. But I can actually go and I can then teach others the knowledge that I've learned. And at the same time, I'll also be researching some new topics. And every one of my books here, I've had a lot of research with. And I'll be able to then share that knowledge with others. Um, so, so that's why I, I started writing the books is to further my continuing education, maintain my cybersecurity certification at the same time. Why did I pick LeanPub? Um, well, cause you all make it so freaking easy, uh, to, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, it, it's, I absolutely love LeanPub in that. You know, I can go on here, I can start writing the book, I can I can actually make the book available as I write it. All right, I can set the price. You all earn some money off of it, so I'm supporting your site every time somebody buys the book. I love that about it. There's no upfront cost for me. And I can actually go on there and you know, I can control the formatting using uh the the markup language. And of course as a as a programmer, you know, oh hey, I'm all sorts of about that. But also, you know, I love how it enables and empowers small authors like myself whose books would probably never see the light of day otherwise. Because let's let's face it, a lot of publishers, if I go to a publisher, you know, one of the big name publishers out there, and I say, hey, I want to write this book on cybersecurity. And they'll be like, well, who are you? Well, you know, I've worked for the, you know, I've worked cybersecurity for 10 years. Yeah, that's cool. So have a lot of other people. Um, and, and I understand that. I don't fault them for that because when you're talking a traditional mass marketed book, 
there's a lot of upfront investment that has to take place to get that book printed. Um, I have actually printed uh, my Death by Identity Theft book. I've actually printed physical copies of that. Um, that was not cheap. That cost me several hundred dollars just for like 40 books. And I completely understand why large publishers would not want to put an investment into somebody who is, who's a completely unknown author. And so that is why I'm with you guys. And that's why I absolutely love Lean Pub because you enable and empower people who would otherwise not have that voice. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, I've got I've got a question about uh, what you did with with the print version of your book. Just a second for the for the sort of like in the weeds nerds uh, who stick around for this part of the interview, <laughs> um, uh, uh, who are interested in self publishing. But um, yeah, one uh, thank you for saying that about uh, enabling projects that otherwise might not be uh, done done. That is actually very core to LeanPub, and it's there sort of in some kind of what we think of as kind of systemic ways, like paying an eighty percent royalty rate, for example. Uh, it's part of the reason there is to make it certain types of book projects profitable that otherwise wouldn't be. Uh, and another thing is the whole lean, lean publishing idea is like get your book out there uh, and, uh, and start building an audience in a way that, you know, the conventional publishing process won't let you do because you have to wait until you're done. Uh, but also, um, this is something that I've done a little bit of research into, but like a lot of people get really excited about book ideas and get really depressed and quit when they discover how hard it is to get a conventional publisher. Uh, and especially, yeah. especially, yeah. And especially when you start, con you know, they'll say to you, the one thing they might say to you is, Hey, what's your, what, what, what audience are you bringing? And I think a normal person would be like, wait a minute, isn't that your job? Uh, but nowadays publishers do not think that way. They're like, they've been cutting their marketing budgets and they go, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many people are you bringing to, to the table? Uh, and oft often, you know, what they have left to provide you. And they might not even really provide you with a proper editor anymore. And so what you're left with is an advance, if you're lucky enough to get one, and prestige right, and legitimacy, but often little more than that, uh, which is one of the reasons that, that self-publishing has become quite a bit more popular, particularly for, I mean, I would venture to say for professionals like yourself, people who are really smart and really know what they're doing and are like, why would I bang my head against the wall of this weird industry when I could just get my book out there? Yeah. And, 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 and also, uh, you know, with a, con a conventional publisher is not going to publish a book that might only appeal to a thousand experts around the world uh, because they can just do the math on how much money they're going to make from it. But for an expert, like many, many lean pub authors are in, in various areas, if they can, you know, reach a thousand people and get 10,000 bucks, that's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. My next question is, you mentioned print. What service did you use to get your book into print? Um, I actually used a, uh, a local publisher that we have up here in uh, Blue Ridge Summit, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, I don't even remember the publisher's name now, honestly. Uh, actually, a friend who works for the Chamber of Commerce uh, hooked me up with it. Um, but they were a small-time local publisher, and, you know, the, they were absolutely great to me. Uh, I sent them the, the PDF. Of course, this is before you guys even had the print-ready PDFs. So I sent them an exported PDF, and, and they said, okay, well, you know, hey, this isn't quite formatted properly. And I was like, okay, well, you know, so, you know, what's it going to cost to fix it? And they're like, yeah, I think they, they charged me like 150 bucks or something. And I said, okay, well, I was originally planning on ordering this number of books. Let's actually increase the number of books I'm ordering, and then that way – 
the the amount that I'm investing per book is lower. Um, I did it that way because the, they're actually uh, promotional uh, giveaways that I'll actually just give away all of these books that I had printed uh, to promote myself uh, as a cybersecurity professional, as someone who understands identity theft. So that that's that was really why I, I got the the books printed in the first place was so that I could promote myself better instead of you know going up to somebody oh yeah hey I published a book here's you know here's the URL no no I published a book here have a copy yeah thank and you that, th thank you for telling yeah. me that's actually a really that's a really popular reason for uh, lean pub authors to to get their books into print uh, particularly if you if you'd like it's it's a it's kind of like a calling card it's kind of like this physical proof that yeah I I know what I'm doing uh, it's 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 for real uh, and particularly for people who do consulting work um, having a book yeah. can be a really great way of finding new clients and uh, you know improving your your profile yeah and it positions you as an expert in your field um, you know it's one thing to say I you know I'm a professional it's another thing to say I'm a professional here's a, a copy of the book that I have. It, I think of it as a, an, an extra large business card, to be honest, mm -hmm. an, an extra large business card with a lot better callback rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the last question I always like to ask uh, in these interviews with Lean Pub authors is if there was one thing we could fix for you or one thing we could build for you, one magic feature, what would you ask us to do? Uh, you're going to laugh at this one. Um, and and I, I've been ready for this question. And you're absolutely going to laugh. Okay. Um, the only thing that I would absolutely love to have with LeanPub is the ability to integrate my browser spell check. That's the that's the only that's my only complaint is I can't get my browser to work very well with uh, LeanPub as far as spell checking. I have to copy it out, paste it into somewhere else, run the spell check there, and then paste it back in. So, and that's actually just a, some HTML settings, if I remember correctly. So, if you guys could fix that, I'd absolutely love it. Thanks very much for sharing that. You know what? It, you know, after all these years, I think you're the first person to mention that. But I, I've got to say, it's something I've I've thought about myself. It's uh, I think it's a feature of the fact that you're so you you use our writing in the browser feature. Uh, yeah. And I think you've been using that for a while. It used our writing in the browser thing used to like, in addition to the lack of a spell check, used to suck to use. Uh, and we made a we tried we made what we hope was a big improvement to it relatively recently. And we've actually now been getting more people using it. Um, and so making improvements like that, I mean, obviously, copying and pasting out of a browser into like Word to spell check is, uh, is good for sanity, but um, for a sanity check, but not ideal. Uh, there are all kinds of tools right. that can be used for spell checking in browsers. And that's definitely something that we should, we, we will think about, about adding. And if it does come down to a few lines of code, hopefully, hopefully that'll make it really easy for us to provide that. Um, well, thanks. Thanks very much, Ken, for taking time out of your out of your day to to do this interview. And thanks for being a Lean Pub author. All right. Thank you, Len. I really appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed the interview. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.